0: you have your copy of God's Word, I invite you to turn with me once more to the book of Romans, Paul's letter to the Romans, and this morning I want to read from chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, Romans chapter 2. If you're joining us for the first time, we're in a study through the book of Romans on Sunday morning, and we've come now to this second chapter, and I'll read our passage in just a moment. By now, I imagine most of you know how much I love the Pilgrim's Progress because I talk about it a lot from the pulpit. In fact, if I got stranded on a desert island and I could only take two books with me, I would take my Bible and I would take a copy of John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. And I love it. It never ceases to provide me with a treasure trove of sermon illustrations. But in 1678, Bunyan was writing the pilgrim's progress which if you're not familiar with the story it's an allegory of the Christian life but Bunyan was in jail there the Bedford jail and he used Paul's letter to the Romans really as his guide as he was writing this masterful work but as the story goes it's about the main character his name is Christian he lives in the city of destruction uh, there's a character named Evangelist who tells him how to escape the city of destruction and make his way through yonder wicket gate and set out for the celestial city. And so Christian leaves behind family and friends and turns his back on the city of destruction as he's headed out for salvation in the celestial city. But along the way, he meets some interesting characters And early on in his journey, he happens to come across a guy by the name of Mr. Worldly Wiseman. And Worldly Wiseman is a character who really tries to point Christian away from Christ to a man named Legality who lives in the village of morality. Now Christian had this heavy burden on his back, and he wanted to be rid of his burden. Evangelists told him that the only way he could be rid of his burden was to come to the place of the cross. But Mr. Worldly Wiseman has some other ideas. And so I've got some pictures I'll throw up on the screen there for you just as I tell the story. If you're if you like you don't want to read the book, but maybe you want to watch the movie, there's a great animated film that came out five or six years ago on Pilgrim's Progress, and you can find that. But there in the graphic you'll see is Mr. Worldly Wiseman, who's talking to Christian, who says to him, You can get rid of your burden. Just a short distance from here, there's a village named Morality. And in this village is a man named Legality. He has sound judgment, a good reputation. He has skill in helping people like you get such burdens off their shoulders. And to my knowledge, he's done a great deal of good this way. You should go to him and be helped right away. And so Christian leaves the path to the narrow gate And he goes on to the village of Morality. And he goes with this promise of having his burden lifted without the price of the cross. But as he progresses toward Mr. Legality, who lives in the village of Morality, there's something dreadful that happens to Christian. Bunyan says it this way, Christian turned out of his way to go to Mr. Legality's house for help, but when he drew near to the hill... You see, the city of morality was in the shadow of this massive hill, which seemed so very high. And the path he was following passed under such an ominous looking overhang that he was afraid to continue on for fear that it might fall on him. So he stood still, wondering what to do next. And to make matters worse, his burden now seemed heavier than ever. And suddenly flashes of fire came out of the hill and made Christian afraid that he would die. And so he continued standing there, sweating and shaking with fear. And now he was sorry that he had ever listened to Mr. Worldly Wiseman's counsel. Now the thing is, the benefit of reading Bunyan is that you really begin to identify his characters and places in real life. Because there will always be those who claim to offer salvation through rule keeping, through man's attempt at morality. And you see, a moralistic person knows enough to know how to survive as best he can in the world. He values things like personal responsibility and hard work, honesty, characteristics that all of us would value and say are important because it's a recipe for a successful life. The problem, however, is that it's not enough for eternal life. There are plenty of people who think that their morality is going to lead them into eternal life. But ladies and gentlemen, morality itself is not enough to remove the guilt of sin and save the lost. And so here in Romans chapter 2, Paul introduces us to a fellow. I'm going to call him Mr. Moralistic Man. Because here we are given a profile of an individual who condemns and judges other people all while putting his confidence and trust in his own moral performance. And Paul is clear here that he is just as lost as the pagan man whom Paul describes back up in chapter 1. So Romans chapter 2, verse number 1. Let's stand as we read the Word of God this morning. I want to read through verse number 11. The Bible says, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance, but because of your hard and impenitent heart you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. So here in these verses, the Apostle Paul provides us with a profile of Mr. Moralistic Man. And so I want to speak from that subject this morning. Our Father and our God, we are grateful for the truth of your word. God, thank you for the words of Romans chapter 2, where we're reminded, Lord, that it's not our morality, it's not self-righteousness that leads to eternal life, but, Lord, we're reminded of our need for the gospel of Jesus Christ and the righteousness which Christ can give, and only Christ. And, Lord, it's available and received through faith. So take these words may they wash over our lives in Jesus name I pray amen you may be seated I read where Francis Schaeffer great Christian philosopher apologist but he was once asked the question if you had 1 hour with a modern person to talk to them about Christianity what would you say and he replied by saying that he'd spend the first 50 minutes trying to convince them that they're lost, because failing to see that is the reason that modern people find Christ irrelevant. In these first few chapters of Romans, that's the, that's the same thing that the Apostle Paul is doing. He goes through great lengths to illustrate the fact that apart from the grace of God, mankind is lost and in need of salvation. And until he understands that he's lost, he'll never understand why he needs to be found. His one and only hope of rescue is in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you know, there are plenty of false hopes that people cling to in life. And none, perhaps, is any more dangerous than clinging to the mask of morality, which can become a smokescreen to hide behind. And it's this very thing that Paul is explaining for us now as we've come to Romans chapter 2. Donald Gray Barnhouse says of this section of scripture that it's not merely given to show us that all men are sinners, for that truth is taken for granted throughout. But the objective here is to alert sinners to the terrible consequences of that fact. And we've got to see that the inevitable result of our sinfulness is the certainty of God's judgment upon all unrighteousness. Whether that's the unrighteousness that he's described back up in chapter 1 when he's described the pagan world and its rejection of God, its rejection of God's revealed truth. And you remember all of the sins that the Apostle Paul mentions there in chapter 1 that the heathen world is given over to. God gave them up to certain sins to experience the consequences of those sins. There's sexual immorality that's described, homosexuality that's described. There are social sins and relational attitudes which are sinful. All of that is described in chapter one. God gave them up to these particular sins. And so Paul's point in chapter one is showing that the entire world, the pagan world, is in need of god's grace because it's under god's wrath god's judgment and now he comes to chapter two and says you have no excuse O man every one of you who judges so even the religious world uh, the moral world which thinks that it's good and better than the rest apart from the grace of god it too is under the judgment of god And so Paul here is describing the moralistic individual, the self-righteous person who doesn't know the Lord, but assumes that he's better off than the rest. Certainly I'm not a church-going kind of person, this man might say, but I'm not evil by any means. I try to live right, even try to live by the Ten Commandments. I'm fairly good. I feel like my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds, and so by that definition, I think things are okay between me and the man upstairs. You ever heard anybody who've expressed that attitude? Well, Paul wants those moralistic, self righteous individuals to to know that your salvation is not dependent upon rule keeping, it's not about keeping score. And so the principle, then, that we come to understand from this passage of Scripture, it's there in your notes, and you can write this down. Those who seek salvation in rule-keeping are just as lost as those who seek it through rule-breaking. So that the entire world, Paul's point here, going all the way up to verse 21 of the third chapter, is to show us that the entire world, both the irreligious world, the religious world, Apart from the grace of God in Jesus Christ, the entire world of humanity is under the judgment of God because of sin. And man's morality is not enough to cut it. And so, Mr. Moralistic Man, I want you to notice here from this passage several characteristics about him. Number one, notice with me his judgmental attitude that's described. And you really see this in verse 1, where Paul says, You have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. Because in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Have you ever found it to be true that those who are often the most vocal in the way that they condemn other people, secretly they have the most to hide themselves? It's why they criticize other people because if I can just criticize other people, then that'll keep the spotlight off of me. But you see, here in these verses, Paul is turning his attention to this moralistic man or woman and says, Listen, you have no excuse. Every one of you who judges. Because in passing judgment, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, do the very same things. The moralistic man likes to talk about they, but here Paul turns that around and talks about you. Underline that word you here in chapter 2. If you go back up to chapter 1, you'll notice Paul has described the world using terminology like this. They or them they by their unrighteousness suppress the truth what can be known about God is plain to them God has shown it to them but they've rejected it therefore they've been given up but here in chapter 2 Paul is saying you kind of reminds me of a song I know that you've sung it before goes something like this it's not my brother not my sister but it's me O Lord standing in the need of prayer you ever heard that It's not the preacher. It's not the deacon. Well, well, maybe it's a couple of the deacons. (laughs) But it's me standing in need of God's mercy. It's me who is in such desperate need of God's grace. It's me who has broken God's law. It's me who, apart from Christ and his righteousness, I stand condemned before God's holy justice. It's one thing to go through life pointing a finger at everybody else, but it's another thing for you and me to get honest and simply say before God, Lord, I recognize that it is me who needs your mercy. But you see, the moralist thinks that it's everybody else who has the need. While he knows he's not perfect, he likes to think of himself as being better off than he really is. He's not in the same boat as they are, whomever they may be. And so he finds it easy to judge other people. So if you go all the way through verse 16 here in chapter 2, you'll notice Paul uses a form of that word judge or judgment at least nine separate times. And the word that he uses there translates a term which means to separate, to determine. It's this idea of being able to determine right from wrong, truth from error. There's a sense in which all of us need to exercise sound judgment. So there's a positive way that you and I need to understand what it means to be discerning as God's people. God fully intends for you to live with spiritual discernment. It's not being judgmental whenever you simply call sin what it is and you agree with God's word as God has spelled it out for us in the pages of his word. That's making a good judgment call. In fact, all of you have used sound judgment at some point already throughout the course of the day. On your way to church this morning, you had to make a judgment call. You were coming through town and you passed through an intersection. As you're approaching the intersection, the light goes from green to yellow. And in that moment, you've got to make a judgment call. Am I going to hit the brake? Am I going to hit the gas? Uh, All of us make sound judgment. We're to use sound judgment when it comes to determining right from wrong. We're not to get up Uh, to get caught up with the prevailing wisdom of the day or to have minds that are shaped by the truth of God's word. This is going to be Paul's point later on in chapter 12 when he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, present your bodies holy, acceptable to God, a living sacrifice. This is your reasonable service. But then he says this, don't be conformed to the world around you but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that by testing you may discern what is the will of God. So there is this sense in which you're to use good, sound, moral judgment and be informed by the truth of Scripture. But that's not what the Apostle Paul is talking about here in Romans chapter 2. He's explaining that there's a difference between using sound moral judgment and being a judgmental person that's really based out of your own sense of self righteousness and hypocrisy. I'm gonna show you what he's meaning, but I want you to go to the Sermon on the Mount for just a minute. Go to Matthew chapter 7, because Jesus had something to say about this very attitude that the Apostle Paul is describing. Matthew chapter 7, verse number 1. Listen to what Jesus says. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that's in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, "Uh, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So here Jesus is saying that there's a very real difference in using sound moral judgment. He's not arguing against you and me, holding to the truth of God's word, agreeing with God as far as truth and error, what's true from what's false. But Jesus is saying that his followers are not to be characterized by this judgmental spirit that's born out of a sense of their own self-righteousness because at issue is their own hypocrisy and that's the very attitude that paul is describing uh, when he has something to say about mr moralistic man it's this hypocritical self-righteous judgmentalism always going around looking for specks in the eyes of other people when in reality there's this plank that's sticking out of your own eye. I want to correct everybody else around me and I want to point out the failures and the imperfections in the lives of everybody else around me because they fail to meet my standard and then you begin determining what the standard is or shouldn't be and you really begin judging them by yourself. And so Paul turns to those individuals here in Romans chapter 2 and says, who do you think you are? You're without excuse, you who judge another, because in passing judgment on another, you only condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Others may be more overt in their sin. That's Paul's point here. Romans 1, the pagan world, is more overt in its sin, but here he's talking about those who are covert in their sin, who practice the same things, albeit they do it secretly. Uh, They pride themselves on keeping the letter of the law, per se, but they ignore the fact that they've broken the spirit of the law. You say, what do you mean? Well, in the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus is describing true righteousness as opposed to the self righteousness that was characteristic of the Pharisees, he says something like this You've heard it said, don't murder. The law of God says, don't murder. I say to you that if you're angry in your heart, you're guilty of murder. You've heard it said, don't commit adultery. Don't commit sexual sin with someone who's not your spouse. Jesus says, but I say to you that if you have had lust in your heart for someone who's not your spouse, you're guilty of breaking the law. So in that sense, you see that, whether it's in terms of the spirit of the law, the letter of the law, we're all guilty of breaking the law. And so none of us can stand before God on the basis of our own self-righteous merit And that's the point that Paul is making here in chapter 2. But Mr. Moralistic Man is all too eager and quick to pronounce judgment on other people because he fails to understand his own need. Notice the second characteristic about him. Not simply his uh, judgmental attitude, but what about his hypocritical actions? Notice how they're demonstrated. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you'll escape the judgment of God? Verse 3. We know that the judgment of God falls upon those who break his law, those who do the things that are outlined in chapter 1. What about you? You've broken the same law. You've committed the same sin. You've tried to cover it up, and you may be able to hide behind your morality a little bit better than the next man, but you need to know that you are just as needy as the rest of the world around you. And so Paul is turning to the person who perhaps has been sitting there listening to his explanation of pagan lifestyles back up in chapter 1, Maybe they're feeling smug to themselves, pleased that they're not like the rest of the world, but but Paul says you do the same things. You're, You're quick to judge other people when you do the very same thing. Now, I thought about that. Why is it that we deny our own guilt for doing the very same things that we condemn in other people? Well, I think there are at least three reasons that we do that. The first reason is... We're blind to many of our own faults. Did you know that? While we understand some, to be sure, you know what many of your faults are, you and I have to be perfectly honest that we're blind to a lot of our own uh, faults. We all have blind spots. I have blind spots, you have blind spots. In fact, one of the greatest lies of our time is this idea that we understand ourselves. Someone says, well, don't you think that I know myself? To which I would say, nope. Because the Bible says that the heart is deceitful. Your heart will deceive you in a New York minute. Now, you may know your secrets. You know your fears. You're aware of those areas in your life in which you're tempted. But it's also true that you have blind spots in your life because you don't know yourself the way that you think you do. By the way, it's why everyone who has bad breath always has a secret to tell you. Don't tell me you know yourself. Listen, can people speak honestly with you without you getting defensive about it? Is there someone that you've given permission in your life to hold you accountable? We all need these individuals in our lives. I need those individuals, you need those individuals, because in a lot of ways we're just blind to our own faults. Another reason that we're all too prone to judge other people, uh, we forget many of our own shortcomings. We have short memories. I made this statement the other night, but uh, we tend to forget the things that we should remember, and we tend to remember the things that we should forget. That's how deceitful my heart is. And it's easier to condemn sin in the life of another person than it is to honestly deal with it in my own life. In relationship to ourselves, we want grace, don't we? We want everybody to show us grace. But you see, when we've been wronged in relationship to other people who've wronged us, we want vengeance, we want retribution. Case in point, I could use an illustration from the Old Testament here. King David, 2 Samuel chapter 11, he commits sin with Bathsheba. Has her husband murdered? Gory details. A sordid affair in the life of David. The last verse of chapter 11 says that the thing that David did displeased the Lord. There's a period of time that passes. 2 Samuel chapter 12 says that the Lord sends Nathan the prophet to confront King David. But here's the approach that Nathan takes. He tells David a story and says there were two men who lived in a certain city. One was a rich man, a wealthy man. He had vast flocks and herds at his disposal. The other was a poor man who had only one little lamb, one little ewe lamb, a little pet in the family, brought it up, nursed it, it became like a little daughter to him. Children played with it. A stranger came to visit the rich man, but instead of taking from his vast flock, he goes to his neighbor and steals the little lamb from his poor neighbor, kills it, and feeds it as a meal to the stranger. David's response is one of indignation, and I can sort of imagine him in my mind's eye sort of leaning forward there as he's seated on his throne. Maybe he clenches his fists, grits his teeth, and says, the man that's done that deserves to die. But then imagine his shock when Nathan the prophet points his finger, gets it right up there next to the king's nose, and says, you, or the man. You see, the thing is, folks, it's easy for you and me to go through life pointing the finger at everybody else. It's another thing entirely for me to point the finger right here and say, I am the man. It's me who needs mercy. It's me Who needs grace? And so we pass judgment oftentimes because we forget this. A third reason that we're so quick to pass judgment, we like to rename things in order to minimize our own personal guilt. Have you ever noticed that in your life? Other people may lie and cheat, but we fib. We embellish a little bit. Other people may betray trust, but we protect our rights. Other people may steal. But we just simply take what's owed. And so we cover our tracks. And like Adam and Eve, we, we try to hide behind fig leaves, the smoke screen of our own morality. I'll never forget, when I was a kid, my parents had to go down the road. They had to go to the elementary school one evening for a parent-teacher meeting or something like that. And so they left me in charge with my two younger sisters. So I get this harebrained idea that I want to play with matches while mom and dad's gone. Don't know why I did it, but I did it. Don't judge me. (laughs) But as I'm playing with matches, I'm setting little pieces of paper on fire. Well, one of those pieces of paper falls in the floor and catches the carpet on fire right in front of my dad's recliner there in the living room. Yeah. And so you know what I do? I come up with this Hairbrain hair scheme, I, I, I moved my dad's recliner forward a little bit to cover the spot in the carpet. But then when I did that, I realized that, well, I've got to do something now with the sofa. So I have to pull the sofa out a little bit closer so it matches where the recliner is. And then I look and I realize, oh, I've got to do something with the love seat across the room. And so I pull in a little bit closer to where when mom and dad get back, they, they look at the living room and there's something different. It's It's dimensionally smaller than it was when they left. And then I have to get honest and I have to expose what I had done. You see, the thing is, folks, morality, fig leaves, it's all a smokescreen. It's, It's impossible to keep that kind of thing concealed. If that's what you're trusting in, but I've got good news for you. If you will expose what you're trying to cover... God and his mercies in Christ will cover it. But you see, if you go through life trying to cover it, then one day, before God's holy justice, it will be exposed. And when we stand before the judgment seat, there will be no sufficient covering apart from the precious blood of Jesus. And that's Paul's point here in Romans chapter 2. Notice the third thing, and I'll leave you with this. We'll come back to this later on. But notice a third characteristic of Mr. Moralistic Man, and it's his personal accountability as it's determined. He's going to be held accountable by the judge of the universe. And on that day, his morality and his rule-keeping and his scorecard will not be enough to save him from the judgment that he's under. He fails to recognize the fact that it's the goodness of God and it's the kindness of God and God's patience that's meant to lead him to repentance. You see that there in verse number four? You don't realize that God's been patient with you. By the way, hasn't God been patient with sinful humanity? Hasn't he been patient and long-suffering in your own life? Why is it that God didn't snuff me out of existence the moment that I said something about a fellow image-bearer that I shouldn't have said when I slandered their character? Why is it that God didn't immediately call me into account with that thought that I had that I shouldn't have had, or that thing that I did that I shouldn't have done? God, in His mercy and His long suffering and His kindness, it's meant to lead me to repentance. And that's the point. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, Mr. Moralistic Man, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. And on that day, it will not matter how morally and decent and upstanding a man or a woman you think you were. It won't matter what kind of car you drive. It won't matter what neighborhood you lived in. It won't matter what your last name was. It won't matter what church you belong to. The only thing that will matter on that day is whether or not the righteousness of God's Son had been applied to your account because that's the only righteousness that counts. It's the righteousness of Jesus, which is available to all, but you've got to receive it through faith, which means you've got to repent of your sin. And place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ who died and rose again. And this glorious exchange takes place. The gospel tells me that I need the righteousness of God, but it's Christ who gives me that righteousness as a free gift of his grace. But you see, here in chapter 2, you won't find any word. Uh, As far as grace is concerned, there's no mention of gospel in these verses. And the reason for that is because Paul wants the entire world, both the irreligious world and the religious world, both the immoral world around us and the moral world of rule keepers to know that apart from the grace of God, we are all under his condemnation. Two points of application and I'm through with this. You come to a passage of Scripture like this, you need to remember that in warning us not to judge, the Bible is cautioning us against the sin of hypocrisy. And that's really the issue that's being dealt with here. It's not about using sound moral judgment. We all need to do that. But it's hypocrisy, self-righteous hypocrisy that the Apostle Paul is dealing with here. He's saying that's not sufficient to save you from the judgment of God. And then he has something to say later on about the gospel. By the time you get to chapter 3, verse 21, he wants you to know that the righteousness of God, it's available through Jesus. And the heart of the gospel is that God's righteousness has been revealed so that it can be received. Don't leave here without knowing for sure that you possess true righteousness that the righteousness of God's Son has been credited to your account. It's available to you through faith. But you've got to receive it. Would you stand with me as we pray this morning? I think I mentioned this last week, but you know in many ways, both Romans 1 and 2, it's really a commentary on the parable of the prodigal son that Jesus mentions in Luke 15. You remember that parable? I love that story. We're all familiar with the prodigal son who demanded that he receive his share of the father's inheritance. He takes what his father gives him and he goes out into the far country, and Jesus says that he wastes it with sinful living, prostitutes, debauchery. He lives it up out in the far country, and he only ends up in the pig pen. But there in the pig pen, as he's eating the slop that the farmers fed the pigs, he comes to his senses and says, you know something? My father's servants fare better than this. I'm going to arise and go to my father. And as the story goes, the son's making his way to the father, but the father's running to the son. And the father takes the son and clothes him in his righteous robe, puts a ring on his finger, welcomes him home in mercy in forgiveness, in grace, kills the fatted calf and says, Let's have a party. And they all begin to make merry and celebrate. But you see, the thing is, in that story, there are two sons. The elder brother never left the premises. And rather than joining his father in joy and celebration that his brother had come home, you know what the elder brother's doing? He's pouting. Got his lip run out. Angrily, self-righteously, he says to his father, my brother's taken your stuff and he's wasted it and here you have thrown a party for him. All these years I've served you and you've not so much given me anything. And the point of the story is this. You can be just as far away from the father in the house as the prodigal is in the far country. And my burden as a pastor and my concerns for a number of people who are in the house but they're far from the Father's heart. Moralistically and self-righteously they think that they're better than the next man. I'm certainly not in the category of a Romans 1 society. But all the while they're blind to their own sense of need. Religion, morality, rule keeping won't cut it. You need Jesus. Would you bow with me this morning? Every head bowed. Every eye closed. If you don't know Jesus this morning, what's preventing you from coming to him? Don't trust in your own efforts at keeping the rules. Because as Paul has clearly explained here, you can't keep the rules with perfection. And when you stand before God, that's the standard. His perfection. His righteous judgment. The only way to be saved is to have the righteousness of God's Son. Lord, take the truth of your word and change us. God, for those who've been prodigals in the far country, Lord, today they need to come home and place their faith and trust in Jesus and you'll welcome them with open arms, mercy and grace, and clothe them in the righteousness of Christ. And for those elder brothers in the room who've never left the building, never left the property, but they're just as far away from the Father, Lord, they need your grace too. Open their eyes to that reality. May they come to Jesus. In his name I pray.